Over the past few years, I have asked you guys to give me a rating and review. And if you've done that, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. It's so helpful. But if you haven't, I get it. I kind of get it. Like, I'm asking you to go and click on this thing and then like, how do I do it? And then I have to come up with some kind of a review and I don't know what to say and I'll do it later, right? I, I get it. I've, I've kind of been there before. I, I know exactly how you feel. And so I'm not asking you to do that now, okay? What I'm asking you to do now is so easy. Anybody can do it and it literally takes like one second. Go into whatever you're listening to, whether it's Apple Podcast or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on, they all have it, and just click on the subscribe button. Just subscribe. It takes one second. You don't have to be creative. You don't have to come up with a review and write it all out and you know be self-conscious about it. Just hit that subscribe button. That would be so, so, so impactful for me. And if you're enjoying this and getting a lot out of it, that would mean the world to me. It really would. And it's so easy. Anyone can do it. Like, let's literally stop listening right now. Stop listening. Go and do it. That's how much it means to me. Nobody ever asks you to leave their show and stop listening for anything. But I'm asking you to stop listening right now. Go and just quickly subscribe. Come right back and take a listen. That would mean the world to me. I would really appreciate it. You guys are awesome. And I really appreciate it. Thanks. When we get properties under contract, nine times out of 10, we are negotiating a due diligence period with that house. Because usually we'll go in with a price that we want to pay and the seller has a higher price that they want. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right. Thank you for joining me on Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me for another live Q&A replay. I'm so excited to bring this to you guys. This was one of the most fun ones that I've done. It went really long. Normally, my uh, Q&As on Wednesdays at 7 p.m., by the way, on Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, YouTube, wherever you want to watch it, I'm there. But uh, we do these and they usually last around about a half an hour. That's pretty much where I cut it off. Uh, this one went almost a full hour uh, because it was just there were so many questions coming at me and and I just got into it and really uh, had a good time answering questions and so some of the things that we talked about uh, were uh, buying out of state investment properties what that looks like how do you do it um, somebody asked about. Uh, educational resources for creating systems in their businesses and I answered uh, that one with some some of my thoughts there. And then um, all the live questions started and they started pouring in uh, hot and heavy. Um, somebody was asking about somebody who's learning to wholesale. They were talking about buying properties on the MLS to wholesale and what I thought about that. And I've got some strong opinions there. So you might want to stay tuned at least for that one to listen to it. I think some of you will find that uh, kind of enlightening and, and useful. Uh, and then there was a lot of wholesaling questions in general, which was was kind of fun for me as someone who does a lot of wholesaling. Um, just about you know contracts and what if you can't sell a contract and how do you find buyers? And I went through. Somebody asked me to just go over what wholesaling is in general, like just like ten thousand foot view. What is it? What does the process look like? And so I did that. Um, and we just had a lot of back and forth about wholesaling and um, what you know buyers who want to see the contract before they buy and just all kinds of nuances about wholesaling. So if that's interesting to you at all, wholesaling at all uh, is something you want to know about, this is a great episode for you. So uh, I give you guys my latest Q&A. 
All right. Thank you for joining me on my Wednesday live Q&A. Hopefully you're here live with me. If you're not, then you're listening to this at some point in the future uh, on a replay on my podcast. And that's fine, too. You can find that replay at Just Start Real Estate in iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. That's where I'm at. If you ever miss one of these, that's where you can go and hear the replay of it. Uh, but when you're live, you can ask questions live, and that's always fun because we can have some back and forth and some exchange. Um, but like I said, you can go out uh, to Just Start Real Estate and iTunes. I put it up here on the screen for you so you can see that. Um, and you can you can uh, listen. You can submit questions, by the way, via email or, or DM. If you can find me on social media, most of my social media, you can find me at Mike S. Simmons, middle initial S, last name Simmons, uh, on um uh, Instagram or Twitter, wherever you want to find me, you can find me there and ask questions and we'll get them on the show. Uh, if you are in a position right now where you're struggling a little bit with leads and you're trying to find more leads and get more leads in your business, uh, I can help with that. If you go to my website, MikeSimmons.com, uh, I have created a program for you. It's free. And you can go and check that out. It's called Winning Direct Mail. Uh, it's right on the front page. You can just put in your information. Boom, I send you the course. And it's a five-part uh, video series on direct mail. And it's how I've gotten the in the first, probably the first uh, five, six years that I was doing wholesaling from like 2015 through 2021. Uh, it was far and away got me more deals than anything else. Uh, it was really, really, uh, it's effective and it works. And uh, most people that I know that are doing real estate, because uh, I, I literally took this uh, kind of an informal poll of all of my friends and people that I know that are really, really crushing it in real estate, uh, ask them how they're getting the majority of their leads. And pretty much everybody said direct mail. So uh, it's legitimate. It works. Uh, it's working still. If you thought that you know you tried it years ago and it didn't work for you, and you're wondering if people are still doing it, they are. And so go check it out on my website. It's called Winning Direct Mail. You can put your information right on the front page there, and I will get that course to you for free. Okay, let's dive into the questions for today and see what we got. I didn't read. I didn't pre-read these. Um, sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Uh, so let's dive in and see what we got. Okay. Uh, first question. Let me get it up on the screen here. Uh, also, Ooh, Hey Doug, how's it going, man? Before we do that first question, let me just check and see if Doug has a question. Let's see. Uh, Doug says, Hey Mike, sorry for all the questions lately. Do not apologize. That's why I'm on here. I prefer when people log on and ask questions. Uh, that's my preference. So I love it. Um, let's see, Doug, I am a flipper learning how to wholesale. I've heard about wholesaling properties currently listed on the MLS. How does that work? We, my company does not wholesale anything that's listed on the MLS. Um, it's just, it's it's super difficult. Honestly, it's, it's really more of a pain in the butt than anything. I would highly suggest that you, uh, if you're talking to the sellers and they want to wholesale it, infinitely easier to get it off the MLS first. Um, and their contract, because the problem is you're going to have to pay their realtor and they're going to have to be involved in the transaction. And it's, when that realtor is talking to other realtors, like it's just a very, very difficult and a very, very difficult uh, conversation for them to have and a difficult scenario to navigate because you're relying on realtors to sort of understand what's going on. We've tried it years ago and it was such a colossal, colossal pain in the butt to do. 
that we just said no more. We're not doing that. It it just it can blow up in your face in so many ways. So uh, if you have a seller who wants, and this happens though all the time, we have a seller sometimes who will say to us, "I, I you know, I'm not, my house isn't selling. I just want to get rid of it. I'll take your cash offer." And we say, "Great, you need to end the contract with your realtor." And we usually don't make the offer until that relationship has been extinguished. Um, but we tell them, make get get rid of the MLS, right? Get it off the MLS. And the if you're out of contract with your realtor, just tell them thanks, but no thanks. And we'll come in and make you an offer and we'll handle it that way. Um, if that realtor is the one who brought us the seller, then they'll get compensated. Like we we tell the seller, hey, listen, they found us and they brought us, you have to, you have to compensate them. And so I'm not trying to avoid the realtor's commissions. I'm trying to avoid the realtor's involvement, if that makes sense. And so you're a flipper learning how to wholesale. I would not, I would not suggest wholesaling things off of the MLS. Now, if you can buy them off the MLS and think you can turn them around and resell them to to hold to hold um to flippers and landlords, that's fine, but that doesn't really work either, unless they just didn't see it on the MLS. But I don't know, man. The MLS and wholesaling only works on the back end, in my opinion. It doesn't work really well. It's really not. I, I would not. I just don't want you to do it, Doc. I know you, and I. I just don't want you to do it on the front end. Don't do it to purchase properties, but to sell properties, that's a totally different thing. My company all the time puts properties on the MLS and wholesales them on the MLS. We just don't buy off the MLS wholesale. If that makes sense. So. I don't like it. I say, if you're learning how to wholesale and you're trying to get into it, this is far and away the worst way to start is to try to wholesale things by purchasing them on the MLS and then wholesaling them. It just, it's a mess. It's a real mess. So I wouldn't do it. If you have a follow-up question, Doug, by all means, we can continue that conversation. But I hate the idea of buying off the MLS for wholesale purposes. Love the idea of selling on the MLS for wholesale purposes. Okay. Uh, I will pop up the next question and Doug, you feel free to follow to ask a follow up. Okay. Next question. Would love guidance on buying out of state investment properties from techniques for research on best markets to, is it okay to purchase site unseen or would you always recommend viewing in person, et cetera? So when you're looking for out of market um, properties, the number one of the main, I shouldn't say the number one thing, but one of the main things that you want to look at is uh, time on market. You you want to, if you're going to go out of your own market, I'm assuming you're doing it for one of two reasons, or maybe both. Either house prices are just way too crazy high and it just doesn't make any sense, or, and or, uh, it just takes forever. Nothing's moving, right? It's kind of stagnant. So you want to do research on uh, days on market and you can do that. Like you can ask realtors, you can call realtors in those market and just ask them days on market. Um, there's tools online, but one thing I definitely would do is go on to list source, listsource.com. Uh, it's where we go. Mostly we go as investors to find houses that we could potentially buy. So we, we pull lists like equity lists and foreclosure lists and things like that. But you can also go on there to kind of see, uh, how many houses are actually selling in that market. And so you can look up the market population or the number of households in that market and then see how many houses are selling and kind of triangulate that a little bit. Um, It's sort of, it's this could take an hour in and of itself just to talk about finding them. But really, you just want to make sure that you're going into a market that has um, 
action or heat. You know what I mean? Like there's houses are moving. It's not just sitting stagnant for sure. As far as buying houses sight unseen, sight unseen to me means you didn't even see pictures of it. And so I wouldn't advise doing that. Um, but I don't think you have to see them in person. Like during COVID, my company continued to buy and sell houses. They were all local. But during COVID, we couldn't go to people's houses, right? There was a lot of um, apprehension about people allowing people in your house and that kind of thing. So we were we were really doing virtual wholesaling, but we were just doing it in our market. We weren't going to the houses at all. We weren't meeting people face to face. We were doing everything over Zoom and um, DocuSign and stuff like that. So I, I think doing it remotely is not a big deal at all. And not not going into the house physically is not necessarily a problem, but you definitely want pictures, maybe a video walkthrough, maybe even send somebody to the house to do a video walkthrough and take pictures. So you make sure you're getting really accurate pictures. But I, I, I wouldn't have a problem with you not physically going to the house. Just make sure that you're getting pictures from somebody who maybe is a little bit impartial, not necessarily the seller. Although a lot of people have the sellers just take pictures and that's fine. But sellers sometimes will avoid the really ugly parts of the house. And that's just going to cause you problems when buyers go to look at it. So I would say sending a third party, a realtor or somebody in that market through the house to take pictures is probably a really good idea. Um, but I, I don't think you have to be there physically yourself at all. So um, I wouldn't I wouldn't do that. I would also use somebody local in that market to pull comps. I know you can pull them from PropStream and you know Zillow and Redfin and all these places. I really don't 100% trust any of those services. And also in the market that we're in, it's kind of volatile. So I would want to talk to an experienced uh, realtor in that market to get ARV because you can build all your numbers out, but it all starts with ARV. And so if your ARV is wrong, your whole calculation is going to be wrong. And so you have to start with good numbers. And I would use a realtor in that market to start with good numbers. That's That's the way I would do it. All right, let's move right along. All right, next question. I'm looking for educational resources for creating systems in your business, no matter what size, to scale long-term thoughts. Yeah, um, if you're looking for educational resources, I mean, there's free ones out there, obviously. I mean, my podcast, this Q&A, things like that. It's tough to dial in and get real specific answers to your specific situation. Um, there's other, there's websites, bigger pockets and things, obviously, but that ends up being a lot of work trying to mine for gold in, in all those resources and forums and chats and all this stuff. I really think, I, I truly believe when you're trying to do anything at a high level, especially when you're trying to build a business that has the potential to make hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. It just doesn't make sense to try to figure it out on your own. And it really doesn't even make sense to just use completely and solely depend on free resources because although the information could be good, it's it's hard, it's not curated, right? It's not what you need when you need it. I really think that coaching and masterminds and things like that are the way to go. Um, as you guys know, I've talked about it a million times on the show. I am um, I am a partner in the Seven Figure Flipping Mastermind, and there's a few th few avenues you can go inside of Seven Figure. 
you can join what's called the runway program. The runway program is designed for newer investors, people who are have done a deal or two, or maybe they do, you know, a deal a month or, you know, not, not a lot, right? The runway program is very foundational. It helps you set up systems and processes, things like that. The next level up is called altitude. And that's for people who are, you know, have done at least, you know, 10, 12 deals. They're already making six figures. And they want to really dial in their systems and processes and really start building out that business system so that they're creating income and, and, and there's houses coming in and out of that, of that machine every month without you having to do everything. That would be more the altitude program. Um, I also have some some stuff that I do uh, more one-on-one with people. If you're interested in that, you can go to my website, mikesimmons.com and check it out. But I definitely think you need coaching, mentoring, um, mastermind. I, I just think those are so valuable. I know for me what it did, I'm I'm not just saying it in theory. I've lived it. I, I was really struggling for about five or six years in my business, not gaining any traction, not knowing what to do, not having really great systems and processes. And... I got help. I joined a mastermind. I joined Seven Figure, and my business exploded. And so, you can you can take that same route. Um, it's an investment for sure. And and Seven Figure Flipping uh, Runway Program, the the beginner more beginner level program, only opens its doors I think once a quarter. And so, if you're looking for something sooner than that, like I said, go to my website and check it out. Uh, otherwise. Uh, you can always reach out to me and ask me about seven figure or what I have going on. All that is available to you. I'm more than happy to help direct you where it's most appropriate for your, you know, where you are in your business. Um, but I, I highly suggest you get help because even though masterminds and coaches and things like that cost money, the money that it saves you in mistakes and lost time and lost opportunity, uh, is, is, you know, the money you're spending is small compared to the money that you're saving and the opportunities that you're not missing because you went and, and got help. It's just, there's, I can't emphasize enough how important I think it is. And so I, that's what I would do if I were you. Okay. Let me get that off the screen and come back here. Cool. Mike Smith. Hey man, how you doing? All right. I'm going to pop this up on the screen here. Hey, Mike, I'm doing your direct mail course now. It's awesome. Thank you. Anytime an experienced expert shares their experience, there is much to be gleaned. I agree, Mike. I really do. Um, in this case, you're talking about my direct mail course, which I mentioned at the beginning of this of this Q&A. Um, I, I agree. I, all that stuff that I'm doing in there, a lot of it, most of it, I learned myself from somebody else. And then I applied it in my business, spent tons and tons of money perfecting it. And then now I'm kind of paying that back and, and doing that um, for everybody else. So I, I think just learning from somebody else and you know the direct mail course is free, but in general, if you're spending money to learn how to accelerate your business, you're paying for speed. You're paying to not take five or six years like it took me to figure things out. You're paying to learn it faster. I did a calculation uh, about six months ago um, of how much money I estimate I lost by not getting help sooner and sort of floundering for five or six years. And it was over $3 million that I lost by trying to figure it out on my own and, and not necessarily doing a great job of that. So I'm no mentor or mastermind is going to cost you $3 million, but it will cost you $3 million. Potentially it cost me 3 million to not do it. So I think doing that is is important. Okay, Mike goes on to say, 
Uh, any tips for flipping properties now besides assuming a lower ARV four to six months down the road? Can I assume there's always a market for median priced homes nicely uh, finished nicely at a reasonable price? Yes, Mike, there is. Uh, I was just had a conversation last week, late last week with a friend of mine um, in my market. He's one of my buyers. He's a house flipper. He does a little bit of wholesaling. He does some rentals. He does some short-term stuff. I mean, he's he's in the game. He's It's all he does. He's not doing it on the side. He's doing it. He's a professional. He's doing it um, to, to for his livelihood. And he has, you know, he has a team of people that he is paying them and that's their livelihood. And I was asking him about the market and what he's doing in this market. Is he kind of getting conservative? Is he, is he still making offers? Is he trying to play it a little bit safe and slow down operations to kind of feel out what's happening? And he's like, I mean, I wish you guys could have heard the conversation. He he got really excited. He said, no, actually, I reviewed my goals for the coming year and I decided to increase all of them. I'm going to do way more. My goal is to do way more next year than I originally planned because the opportunities are tremendous in the market that we're in and the market that we're moving into. So there will always be a market for like median priced or middle of the market, however you want to say it. There's always going to be a market for that because you have to remember, we are, as investors, when we go direct to seller, for example, we're typically buying from people who are in some sort of distress, maybe personal distress, maybe their house is in distress, right? Maybe they're not in so much distress, but you know, for example, you have um, maybe a widow, her husband just passed away. She's in her seventies. She's not in any sort of immediate um, need to move, but the house is in really bad shape. The roof maybe needs to be replaced. Um, Just a lot of deferred maintenance in the house. And so, She's not necessarily in distress, but the fact that she can't maintain a house that is has a lot of deferred maintenance means the house is in distress, which means she wants to move. It's too much. It's too big. She can't afford to maintain. She doesn't need all of this. Like she wants out, right? That has nothing to do with the economy. It has nothing to do with interest rates. It has nothing to do with house prices. She just needs out because she needs out. And she would have needed out two years ago when the market was hot. She would need out three years from now or right now. It doesn't matter. It's circumstances. So people sell to us and people buy because of circumstances. Some people buy because of the market. Granted, right? Some people will sell because of the market. I'm an example of someone who sold because of the market. The market was hot. And so I sold because we were at the top of the market, right? I was going to sell eventually, but it it prompted me because of the market. But most people, death, divorce, loss of job, job transfer, deferred maintenance, um, you know, back taxes, all these things cause people to sell their house. And those happen in all, all, all markets. And so the really, the really good house flippers and landlords and wholesalers, they don't, start and stop based on interest rates and market and economy. They they continue to go. They just alter their approach a little bit. They change the way they talk to sellers. They change the way they talk to buyers. 
and that allows them to compete and be competitive in every market. I know investors, I've been in this since 2008, right? So I went through 2008, I went through the gradual buildup, I went through the sky high prices that we just got out of, and now it's kind of going back down. I've been through that, but I know people who have been in it twice as long as me. They've seen many ups and downs. They've seen good economies, bad economies, high interest, low interest, all of it. And they've been successful through the whole thing. The people who think they they watch, this isn't like day trading. You, you're not watching the market and getting in and out and trying to time stuff necessarily. You, you can do a little bit of that, but the goal is you don't ever want to stop buying and selling. You just want to make sure you're buying and selling smartly, appropriately for the market. But I, it really, it, it worries me and it a little bit frustrates me when, when people tell me that they're looking at the market and they're sort of going to stop buying for a while. It's like, okay, that's fine. Most of those people have a nine to five and that's totally fine too. But if you want to build a sustainable real estate company, if you do this full time for sure, you need to learn how to survive in every market every market, good, bad, winter, summer, spring, fall, doesn't matter. High interest, low interest, Democratic president, Republican president, doesn't matter. You have to learn how to survive in all of them. And if you don't know how to survive in all of them and you feel like you're failing because of the market, get help, find a mentor, find a coach, get help now because it works in every single market. I promise you that. Okay, um, let's see. Next one here, Zach. Hey, Zach, how's it going, man? Zach says, can you give us a rundown of how wholesale works <laughs> from start to finish? Yes, I have done this on this show before, but I'll give you the 10,000 foot view. Um, uh, let's see. And then Zach also said, I'm going to throw this up here too. Uh, what happens if you can't sell a contract and what is the best way to find buyers? Okay, so we'll start the wholesale process um, from start to finish. So it all starts with some sort of lead generation strategy or marketing, whatever you want to call it. And there's a lot of ways that you can find leads. There's direct mail, which I'm a huge fan of. And as, as mentioned earlier by Mike, I have a course out there. If you want to use it, you can. It's free. Um, there is something called PPC. It's pay-per-click, Google Ads. Somebody types in Sell My House Fast in Michigan, and my ad comes up on top because I pay to be on top of that. So it's called Google AdWords. Um, there's a lot of other ways. There's cold calling. You can get a list, download a list and cold call potential sellers to see if they want to sell their house. You can do text blast. You can do driving for dollars, right? So it all starts with some sort of lead generation strategy that drives leads into your business, okay? You drive those leads in your business and they are received by you, whether it's a phone call, a form fill on your website, whatever it is, a lead comes in, you reach out to that seller or you pick up the phone when they call you and you start having a conversation. And that conversation, the main goal of that conversation is to determine motivation. Why are they, why do they need to sell? Why do they want to sell? What's going on in their life? And do they truly need to sell or are they kicking tires, right? You have this conversation, you, you identify people with true motivation, they need to sell their house. You make them an offer on the house, and they accept it, right? Usually there's some negotiation back and forth. Not everyone sells you their house, right? But at some on some level, you're you're communicating with people who showed some interest in you buying their house. You make them an offer to buy their house. They agree. You sign a purchase agreement, okay? So now we have a purchase agreement between you as the wholesaler and the seller, purchase agreement. Now we take the information about that house 
and we put it out to what we call our buyers list, right? It's a it's a private email list of buyers that have identified themselves and said, I am an investor, I'm a flipper, I'm a landlord, I wanna buy discounted properties. And so we take that purchase agreement, we put the information in an email, and we send it out to our buyers list. We identify a buyer or multiple buyers who are interested in that house. We negotiate a price with them. Now, the purchase agreement that we have with the seller for the sake of this demonstration or this conversation, we're going to say we got it under contract for $100,000. The seller agreed to sell us her house for $100,000. Now we put that information out to our buyers. We don't tell them that we have it under contract for $100,000. We just tell them we have this opportunity for them to buy this house and whatever the price you want to mark it up. For the sake of argument, I'm going to say we're we're putting it out to our buyers at a price of 120,000 and we find a buyer who says i will buy that house for 120,000 now i have a purchase agreement with the seller me and i have a buyer who's willing to pay $20,000 more than i have it under contract for then we create between me and the buyer we create what's called in a, an assignment contract an assignment contract basically assigns my rights to this original purchase agreement it assigns it to the buyer for a fee, right? So that per, that assignment contract will basically tell them they're gonna get the rights to this house for $20,000. And we sign that with the buyer, the assignment contract and the purchase agreement go to the title company. Title company totally knows what's happening here, right? And so they look at that and then we all go to closing. The seller gets $100,000, the buyer wires in 120,000, so the seller gets their hundred, I get the difference. That twenty thousand dollars they they wired in a one twenty. Seller gets his hundred, I get the twenty, and we all go home. I never bought the house. I never had to raise money for the house. I simply find a seller who's willing to sell, and a buyer who's willing to buy for more than I have it under contract to buy. Right on the purchase agreement, we create an assignment contract. Both those contracts go to title. Everyone goes to, goes to the closing and we get paid. That's that's a high level overview of what wholesaling is. There's different ways to do it, but that is the traditional sort of straightforward way. Okay, so your next question was, what happens if you can't sell a contract? When we get properties under contract, nine times out of 10, we are negotiating a due diligence period with that house. And so we'll tell the seller, because usually we'll go in with a price that we want to pay and the seller has a higher price that they want. And so in this case, let's just say my my maximum offer that I wanted to make on that house when I went to go see it was 95,000. But I get there and they tell me they'll never go below 100. Maybe they owe 100, who knows, right? And so they can't go below 100. And so I say, Mr. And Mrs. Seller, uh, I came here uh, authorized to spend 95 but you can't go lower than a hundred. Let's do this. Let's sign the contract for a hundred. Okay. And it's a little more than I wanted to spend. And so I need to go and do a little bit of homework on my end. I need to go look again at the market. I need to really dial this in. I need to talk to my, uh, my lenders and my investors and, and my partners and people that I work with and let them know that this could still make sense for us at a hundred. So all I'm asking is that you give me a week or two, maybe 10 days, right? Whatever we want to negotiate, 10 days to, to do my due diligence and see if I can make this deal work at 100. I think that I can, but let me let me see. And when I come back in 10 days or less, I, if, if I find out sooner that, that I can do it, I'll tell you, but I'll come back within 10 days and I'll tell you one of two things. I'll say either, yes, 
we are ready to go. We can close at 100 or I'm going to tell you I, I can't do 100. I, I tried, but I'm 95 is the number that I have to stick at. And you could just say, all right, well, let's just cancel the contract at that point. Or you can lower your price, whatever you want to do. But I'm going to come back and just give you an honest answer. And so that's what we do if we can't sell it. We that's that due diligence, by the way, that 10 days, that's when we go out to our private buyers list and see if we have a buyer at that price. And if we don't, we go back and say, hey, we we can't close at that price. You know, I told you I was going to do 10 days due diligence and I'm just coming back and letting you know I can't do it. So if you set it up properly, if the expectations are set up front properly, sellers don't generally have a problem. It's when you tell them, oh, great, 100,000, no problem. Let's sign the contract. And then I don't call them for a week. And then I come back in a week and say, I can't do it. I can't, I can't buy it for that price. Now they're, now they're really mad. The same thing happened, but in one case, they're like, okay, no problem. And in the other case, they're really mad. It's because expectations. In the first scenario, I, I set their expectations that I was going to come back and give them an answer. And one of those possible answers was, I can't close at 100. In the second scenario, I just said, great. I signed the contract and never said a word about whether or not I could do it. And so expectations are everything. So that's what we do is, as far as like, if we can't sell a contract, we pre-prepare them for the conversation in a week or two that we can't do it at that price. But we, we always try to honor it. It's not a game for us. We don't sign contracts and then come back and say, yeah, we can't do it and see if they'll lower it. If we can buy it at that price and we find a buyer who's willing to pay a price that makes it make sense for us, then we close at that price. Many times we end up closing at the price that we did our due diligence on. Sometimes we don't and we always set them up properly. All right, next question. Best way to find buyers? The best way to find buyers is to go to your local meetups, your local RIAs, shake hands, find out who the investors are, find out who the house flippers are, find out who the landlords are and get to know them and shake hands and, and tell them who you are and what you do and have those real relationships. Those are always great. Another way to do it is um, if, you, if you use ListSource, like I mentioned earlier, you can go on ListSource and pull a list of people who bought properties. And the criteria that you want to pull is somebody who bought a property for cash. They didn't use a mortgage. They don't live there, so it's not owner-occupied, and they bought it inside of an LLC, okay? Homeowners who are living in a house do not buy cash. They certainly do live there, and they usually don't buy it inside of an LLC. So if you find someone who bought it for cash, doesn't live there, bought it with an LLC, that's an investor. And so we pull that list, and we send them letters and say, hey, you know, we buy houses all the time, off-market, way under value. I can't always you know, um, I can't always um, take advantage of the situation or I, I can't always do anything with the houses that I find. And so I find investors who would like to come in and buy those properties. I see that you're an investor. Uh, I would love to make you aware of what I have when I have it. And if you want to give me a call, I can put you on my list or you can go to this website. You know, we, we kind of send them a letter that's setting them up to let them know we have off-market opportunities and we give them a way to get on our list so they can see those. So that's how we find, those are the two major ways we find buyers. Okay, uh, next question. Corey Lawson, my man, Corey. Uh, let's see, Corey, between the market gap, the increased rates and the less active holiday season we are approaching, it seems to be tough going for wholesalers out there. Any advice to navigate the next eight weeks? Yeah, I've actually tried everything you can think of 
because our business slows down a little bit too, uh, especially during the month of December, we have tried not mailing or not doing any marketing during December. We've tried limiting the marketing we're doing. We've tried everything. At the end of the day, and after a lot of trial and error, after a lot of years, we eventually realized that we need to continue to market through the holiday season. We don't slow down. We don't stop. Um, we just keep going because when you stop during the holiday season, when the holiday season is over, it takes a while for your marketing to get out, to get to catch hold, for people to get it in their in their hands. And so we ended up having bad January and Februarys when we stopped marketing in November, December. And so we just we we just keep going all the way through. We just keep going. I mean, that's the best advice I can give you. Um, the more and more I'm in this industry, and the more that my business has grown and kind of matured, we realized that starting and stopping, trying to time things, the interest rates go up, we do, we react to it, or, you know, house prices go down or go up, we stop buying, we buy more. You have to just keep going. You can't, you can't totally like start and stop your business every time a condition changes. So I personally, man, Corey, we're still going full steam ahead. We just are. Uh, it, that's always worked out the best for us. Um, the difference is it's not it's not the marketing that you do. It's not like slowing down or any of that. It's the conversations you have. You need to start talking to sellers with the reality of their situation being made apparent to them. The market is going down. Their house is worth less than it was a year ago. And six months from now, it's going to be worth less probably. Interest rates are going up, which effectively means they're going to get less for their house because people, as interest rates go up, people's buying power goes down. And so that affects house prices. If you live in a cold weather state, which I think, Corey, you have moved to or you're moving to, we utilize that to our advantage in this time of the year. We say, listen, especially if it's a non-owner occupied house, you have winter months coming, you've got snow, you've got ice, you've got frozen pipes, you've got all kinds of bad things that can happen to a house that's not occupied. You're way better off to get that thing sold while it's not snowing and while it's not cold, because not only do you have frozen pipe and snow and ice and slip and fall and all that stuff, um, you've got the the you know heating the house, all these you know holding costs that that kind of kill you in the in the winter months are there. So, anyways, we start the conversations we have have to change a little bit, and we have to put a sense of urgency and reality into our message to sellers. And 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 that's really the things that we modify in these markets. We don't modify our volume or our goals at all. Okay, uh, let's see. Next question, Zach. Zach says, can you give us an example of how a contract signing would go if you're in person? I'm not sure if I understand the question, Zach. So when you go to talk to a seller in person, let me, let me read this again, make sure I got it. Can you give us an example of how a contract signing would go if you're in person? Um, it's pretty straightforward. If we go to a house in person to buy a house and we agree upon a price, we bring a contract. Like that's something I actually get surprised every once in a while by people that I talk to. Um, a few weeks back, I talked to someone who said, when I go to a seller appointment, should I bring a purchase agreement? And I was like, 
dumbfounded. I was like, what, what do you mean? Should you bring a, of course you have to bring a purchase agreement. Like you should be trying to get the contract. You should try to get that purchase agreement in the first appointment always. So it starts with bringing a contract, but we, I, I'm not, the question is confusing for me, Zach, maybe I'm missing your point, but you just sign it. Like you bring a purchase agreement and get a signature in that first, in that first appointment. So I don't, I don't know what part of how that goes that you're, that you're questioning. Uh, so if you want to clarify, I'll be happy to answer. I'm just not sure if I'm getting it. Okay. Uh, Mike Smith, should I avoid higher end, but not outrageously priced properties to flip and stick to median prices or still buy higher end, just be more conservative on Airbnb and sale price? We'll definitely be conservative. When you go to the higher end houses, the, the challenge and the risk always, even in a good market, doesn't matter. The challenge is always that the buyer pool is smaller because it's a higher end house. And so if you have you know, a million buyers in your market, it's a lot, whatever, a million, thousand, doesn't matter. But let's just say a million. You have a million buyers in your market. The buyers who are buying in the median house prices is probably going to represent 750,000 of those million. The rest of the 250 is going to be people who want to buy lower end or can only buy lower end cheaper houses. And then some por portion of that, maybe 100,000, 150,000 are going to be buying higher end. And so even in a good market, meaning good high prices, right? An appreciating market, you always have a smaller buyer pool. So there's a risk there. I have, I have never been a fan of putting a lot of my money, marketing money and energy into higher end houses. Now, if you have done that traditionally, Mike, and you're like, I buy higher end houses, that's what I've always done. I don't think there's any reason to not do that <clears throat> because I just bought a house in my market that would be considered higher end about a year ago. I, house prices were at an all-time high. And that's when I bought my house because that's just when I needed to do it. It's just my circumstances. Like I said, I sold my house when market when the market was at the top. So I needed to buy. If it was, you know, six months from now, like maybe that's when somebody needs to buy. So there's always going to be people buying and selling houses, guys. There just is. But in a in a market where the house prices are going down and interest rates are going up, you know, there's that that high-end buyer's market, the the pool could be even smaller, a little bit smaller. And so you may hold things a little bit longer and then hold times in, in the holding costs kind of kill you. I'm a huge fan, huge fan of spending most of your time, energy, and money in the median market because there's just so many more people. And it only takes one to buy or to sell. It only takes one, but there's just so many, the, the percentage chance of success is so much higher in the middle. And so in this gap period that we're in right now, in this market fluctuation kind of volatile spot that we're in my blanket advice without having you know maybe an hour to sit down and talk to you mike about your operation your access to money your experience all of these things your market t t days on market in your market like there would be a lot of conversation i'd want to have with you to dial in a, like a really really good answer but with what I know so far, what you've told me, and just what I know in general, my blanket advice to the to the general pop population of real estate investors is for sure stick in that median market range. That is your 
best chance of success and probably your safest zone to be in. So yes, I would definitely, definitely stick to the more median priced homes if I were you. Okay, back to Doug. Doug, love it. On my first wholesale, let's see. On my first wholesale, the buyer wanted a copy of the contract with the seller. Is that normal? Yes, it is normal. Um, but I I try to never give out that contract until I have an executed assignment contract with them. Now, technically, you are asking them to pay you to have controlling rights of the purchase agreement, the original purchase agreement. If you look at it logically and realistically, how can someone in good conscience agree to pay you for control of a document they've never seen, right? A really experienced house flipper, landlord, somebody who does this a lot and it's sort of routine for them probably won't force you to show them the contract before they sign the assignment contract. And honestly, if I'm not asked specifically and directly for the purchase agreement, a copy of it, I never give it to the buyer if they don't ask for it. If they ask for it, I make sure that they sign a uh, assignment contract first. I'll tell them the terms. I just don't necessarily want them to see my purchase price and the seller's contact information because if I tell you, okay, Doug, if we're doing a transaction and I say, hey, I've got this house on 123 Elm Street. Here are the pictures. Here's all the information. Go and look at it. You go and look at it. And I say, uh, you could have this house for $200,000. That would be your purchase price. And you run your numbers and you determine that $200,000 is a great deal for you. And then you see my purchase agreement with the seller and my purchase agreement is for 195,000 and you're buying it for 200,000. You feel pretty good. All right. This wholesaler is going to make 5,000, but I love the deal. I'm excited about it. You're you're happy. No problems, right? Now, same scenario. I show you the pictures. You get to see the house. I tell you everything about it and I say you can have it for 200,000, right? Just like the first scenario. You can have it for 200,000. And you run your numbers and look at it and you determine 200,000 is a great price for this house. I'm excited about it. And then you see the purchase agreement and you see that I have it under contract for $50,000. How do you feel now? Right? What if you saw that contract for 50,000 before you agreed to 200,000? Are you going to negotiate a little harder with me knowing that I'm going to make 150,000? You probably are. So I don't show contracts. I don't show the purchase agreement. They don't get access to it until they sign the assignment contract and give me their deposit. That's typically how it works. And if they don't ask, I don't give it to them. So that's how I deal with that, man. But yeah, it is sort of normal. Like you can't necessarily blame someone for wanting to see the contract that they're essentially buying from you, right? So you have to, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little, you got to navigate those waters a little bit. All right, boy, we got a lot of questions. This is good, but we are running over here. Let me try to see if I can do a fire round a little bit, like a speed round. Okay, Mike Smith. I wholesale but never want to be known as someone who doesn't keep his word. As long as I'm telling the seller I'm trying to find a buyer for their home and won't be purchasing it myself, 
is that the ethical way to do it? That is an ethical way to do it. I, I think it's the not advisable way to do it. And it's not because you're being honest. That's not at all, at all the reason why I don't advise it. I, what I suggest, if you tell someone that you are going to wholesale their house or you say, hey, I'm going to sign a purchase agreement with you, but then I got to go find someone to actually buy it because I'm not buying it. It's You're being honest, but you're also introducing an awful lot of confusion into the scenario. What we typically do is we sign the purchase agreement with them. And if we need to do due diligence, like I said earlier, we'll say, hey, we need to go and do you know, a week of due diligence. And we're going to go talk to our investors. We're going to go talk to our partners. We're going to go talk to investors that we're going to be working with. And we need to see if this makes sense for them at this price. And then we'll come back. And if we can't do it, we'll let you know. But the ethical part of it is not necessarily telling them how the sausage is made, right? Most people, if you take them to a slaughterhouse, they're not eating hamburgers anymore. And it's not because they don't love hamburgers or hamburgers are bad. But if you show them how the cows are slaughtered and, you know, a steak driven through their head and all that stuff, right? No one's eating a hamburger. Most people. We don't necessarily tell them how the sausage is made or how the hamburger is made. We just make sure that we never tell them they, the house sale is a done deal unless it is a done deal and we're willing to buy it ourselves if we can't find a buyer we always set expectations we we never use the language to the to the sellers we have to find a buyer because to the sellers you're the buyer right that's the implied agreement that you have and so you're the buyer to them the minute you start clouding that in their brain you will almost certainly not sign many contracts as long as you they get what you tell them they're going to get or the process goes the way that you're telling them it's going to go as long as you keep that that part of your promise that's the ethics of it what's unethical is to say hey mr and mrs seller yes i'm going to buy your house go ahead get the u-haul get everything out of here put a down payment on your next house move out of state like do all these things because i'm buying your house and then you come back to them in two three weeks and say yeah i can't buy your house that's unethical but if you say mr mrs seller i know you want to get a u-haul and you want to put a down payment i need 10 days before you do that i need 10 days to do my own due diligence i need to talk to my investors and talk to my partners and talk to the investor partners that i'm going to be working with I need to find out if I can actually execute on this contract as is because it's higher. The price is higher than what I wanted to spend. But if you give me 10 days, I'll come back and I'll tell you either A, I cannot move forward at this price or B, I can move forward at this price and we're good to go. Can you just give me 10 days before you do anything? Yes, great. That's ethical. That's ethical. I've made this joke a million times, but it it bears being repeated. I have told my my parents what I do. They know what I do. Right. But if I ask them to explain exactly back to me what wholesaling is and how I how I conduct my business, they probably couldn't do it, even though they're proud of me. They love me. My mom watches this Q&A like she hears all this stuff. But it's unless you're in it, it's hard to understand wholesaling. And for the 
the seller who's usually in some sort of personal distress or, you know, the house is in something, something's going on in their life that makes them want to sell to us. They're not going, it's going to confuse the ever loving crap out of them. And you're probably not going to sign many contracts. So it's not unethical to not tell them how the sausage is made. Just make sure they get the sausage they ordered. Okay. To use that weird analogy. Okay. That wasn't exactly a speed round answer, but I'm going to, uh, it was an important one. All right, Zach, do you tell the seller that you're buying it or how are you wording it? Oh, I just kind of said it a couple times there. Um, we really don't get into that a lot if, because the implication is that we're buying it. But as long as they get what we told them they're going to get, that's the important thing. But if we do frame it, like we want due diligence period, we say investors, we say um, partners, um, you know, that those that's the kind of language we use, right? Um, we may sometimes say we we work with a lot of investors who are gonna bring the money to the table for this deal, and we need to talk to them, right? And that is that is true. That's not a false statement. We are working with investors who are gonna be the ones bringing the money to the table, right? But we don't call them buyers because that's just infinitely confusing to use the word buyer to someone who's looking at you as the buyer, right? It's just not, it's not a great way to, to phrase it. It's too confusing. Okay, Mike Smith, how do you handle leads in areas you have no interest in or may or it may be a property that is too weird? Do you offer any way or in a market like this, do you just say list with the realtor? I know. No, we buy houses. We okay. Let me rephrase it. We sign contracts for houses as a wholesaler that we would never want ourselves because, like you said, they're in an area that I don't like or they're weird, weird layout. But what I found is, as a wholesaler, you're not buying houses you like. You're buying houses that you have buyers for. So I buy houses in areas all the time that I would never, I wouldn't buy them. But I know we have buyers in that area. Or I think the layout's weird, but we we still we still get on a contract and, and market it out to our buyers. We always set expectations with the seller if we if we're not a hundred percent convinced that we're gonna find a buyer, or if we're not willing to buy it ourselves. And by the way, a lot of the deals that we sign with sellers, we will buy them ourselves and then figure out a way to flip it or make it a rental or something if we don't find a buyer. But if we have a house where we just don't want it at all. We'll set expectations with the sellers, but we'll still get the contract because I am constantly amazed and constantly surprised by what buyers want and what they're willing to buy and what they're interested in. So we don't start second guessing and only buying things that we personally like because just because I don't like it, it doesn't mean our buyers won't like it. I've seen it hundreds of times. Buyers buy houses that I just wouldn't want, but they do, right? And so we, we sign contracts all the time for houses that we don't love but I don't have to love it because I got buyers that love it. I have hedge funds on my buyers list, hedge funds that buy in neighborhoods that locals will not buy. I won't buy it. My buyers don't want it, but I have hedge funds on my buyers list who will buy it and they'll buy it all day long. So we sign those contracts all the time, knowing we have a buyer who's interested in that neighborhood, even though we aren't and our rest of our buyers aren't, they are. So we, we do it all the time, man. You get, you can't, it's just like a house flipper who who paints a house the way they want it or 
you know, they buy a house in a B neighborhood or a C neighborhood and they use A finishings, A finishes, A cabinets and like high end stuff in a middle of the road house because that's what they would want. If they were going to move in that house, they would want those finishes. But that's not how you do it as an investor. You have to finish it in a way that the buyers will be interested and buy it and where you can maximize profit. And so in a, in a mid-level house, you put mid-level cabinets. In a high-end house, you put high-end cabinets. doesn't matter what you want. It matters what your buyers want. So we do the same thing as a wholesaler. We, we care what our buyers want. Okay. Uh, thanks for your time, Mike. You're very appreciated. Thanks, man. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate that. All right. Replying to Doug Lovett, I see contracts all the time. They usually just black out the price and other. Yeah, you can do that too. Sure, you can do that too if they just want to see the wording of your contract. We have also sent blank contracts to our buyers so they at least can just see the language. And we maybe don't want to show them the house, um, uh, the the seller's contact information and the purchase price. We sometimes we'll sell them a, send them a bank a blank contract to say here this is the contract that they signed. This isn't the one they signed, but it's the same contract. If you just want to see the language, go ahead. But a lot of our buyers are repeat buyers too. So they've seen our contracts a million times. They don't need to see it. So that's another part of just having a more mature business, I guess. All right, Zach, what system do you use for your to find your ARV? Um, so again, I, I don't have time to get into the whole thing, but we use the MLS. That's the important thing. We use the MLS. We don't use any third-party service or anything like that. We go straight to the MLS. And I, I'll put this down as a question for another night. I can go through in, in more detail how I do that. But we're using the MLS because it's just more reliable. Okay, Mike Smith. Thank you so much, Mike. Amazing info once again. Awesome. Guys, very much appreciated. I love, love all the questions, all the live interaction. Like I stop this thing usually at, at, after 30 minutes, like I'm, I'm, I'm done and I cut it off. We're almost an hour in because I thoroughly enjoy having this live conversation with you guys so everybody that was on here live uh doug mike smith zach Corey, uh i think that was everybody i love it guys you're awesome and uh Corey, you are uh very welcome sir and happy early thanksgiving to you as well i will uh I'll see you guys next week. And like I said, thanks for, for logging on live. This is so, so much, so much more fun for me to have a live interaction with you than answering questions that people sent in. So uh, thanks again, guys. I appreciate you all and uh, keep the questions coming. I love it. And we can talk about, I can break down the ARV, the determining ARV, that process. If you guys are interested, uh, I can do that another week. So thanks for being here, guys. And we'll, we will see you next time. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay, until next time.